Hello, I'm Mike Baselli, your host for this podcast and the global community that has rallied around it. During this episode, we spent time with an emergency room physician and a healthcare industry champion to update our community about the fast-moving coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Daria Long is a renowned expert in making life and health better for women and is a regular health contributor on CNN, author of the best-selling book, Mom Hacks, as well as a board-certified emergency department physician and a digital health executive. Given her experience and expertise, Dr. Daria holds a unique, multifaceted perspective of the healthcare system, especially during these unprecedented times. During our time together, Dr. Daria helped clear up several misconceptions about the coronavirus and discuss practical ways we can be managing our families and ourselves while practicing social distancing with the goal of finding balance and mental well-being. I'm thankful for Dr. Daria's passion and desire to spend time with our community while she dedicates taking care of hers while on the front lines of this pandemic. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Daria Long, welcome to our podcast and for spending time with our community during the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, Mike. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, we're grateful to have you on the podcast today to discuss a very fast-moving COVID-19 story, what it's like to battle this virus on the front lines, some of the misconceptions of this virus that need to be dispelled, and how all of us can implement sound mental health practices while remaining socially distant. But before we dive in, a bit of housekeeping. For our audience, while listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas with our guests and interact with the entire community. And lastly, please take a moment to nominate other Passionate Pioneers for a future episode via our guest nomination form link, as well as subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli in Apple or Spotify or click the link at the bottom of the episode notes. All right, Dr. Daria, I'd first like to start out by asking where we currently are as a nation and what is needed most at this time to battle COVID-19. Mike, thank you again for, for letting us on to talk about this. One of the things I'm seeing as ER doctor talking to a lot of my colleagues nationwide is that there's still a huge disparity. We see places Washington State, New York City, now New Orleans, places that are having this huge, overwhelming demand and unfortunately still probably haven't peaked. And then we see other places of the country where we're not even there yet. We're slowly rising in terms of demand and going to see peaks in two, three, four weeks. So you see a very different picture across the country. But I think we all have to keep in mind what it looks like in those cities that are currently the hotspots because we do have those shortages. And we're talking about shortages really of everything, of, yes, of ventilators, of masks, but of medications, of space, of doctors and nurses. It's a really frightening situation because as an ER doctor, I'm used to an overwhelming load of patients, but I'm used to being able to take care of them with the tools. And what's most scary right now is that we are missing those tools that we need. 
And to our listening community, Dr. Daria did mention that we're going to see some peaking of, of cases here in the next several weeks. And given how fast everything is moving, just know that this episode is being recorded the week of March 30th. And we know that things will be changing by the hour and by the day. So I wanted to make sure we dated it uh, so everybody knows where we are currently with the pandemic. So Dr. Daria, back to that with you and your colleagues being an ER physician, what is it actually like on the front lines? And then how best can all of us in general society that are not on those front lines can be supporting leaders like you? So I'm glad you asked that. It's very different in many ways than what we're typically used to, and that we're seeing actually a reduction in other cases that are non-COVID. And we've been seeing that for the past couple of weeks in my emergency department and nationwide, but that, of course, is matched by a significant increase in people with breathing problems. So we're seeing that patient difference. You're seeing a lot more people coming with shortness of breath. One of the hard things is that there's a lot of uncertainty for us as physicians, who we can test, how we can test them, how we're triaging, how we're wearing masks. It seems to still be changing in a given shift. I'll work a shift and it changes. And it's we train in the U.S. In many ways, we're accustomed to having the tools we need. And now I start a shift and you have to go ask the charge nurse for permission to get an N95 mask. It's not what we're accustomed to. It's, it's very concerning for all of us. And a lot of emergency physicians are just buying our own equipment just because there's so much uncertainty of if we will have the equipment we need. Two things that I want to say to the public. One thing that I do really appreciate is that we are seeing that reduction in people who may otherwise have come into the emergency department for something that possibly could have waited. I think people are starting to be really smart about self-triaging for non-COVID things. And another thing I do want to tell people is that we see, and Mike, I bet you've seen this perhaps in your neighbors or people you know, it seems that people seem to take two extremes. I either see people apathetic and they are going out and they're saying, this is no different than the flu, who cares? And then on the other extreme, I see people who are totally panicking and they're not even getting delivery food or going to the grocery store. They're moving into their bunkers. The reality is as an ER doctor, I need people in the middle. And what I've been telling my daughter, I said, when you have these sort of situations, we stay calm and we stay aware. I mean, we're seeing abreast of the news. As you mentioned, you mentioned the date, Mike, because the news we're talking about today will change in five days. And then we make a plan. And I think that's really important that all families have their plan. How are we going to stay isolated? You know, how are we, what are we going to do if one of us gets sick? Because if you are aware and you have a plan that does a huge amount to your level of anxiety and keeping it in control. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Daria. And we are going to talk about finding that middle ground. I think you are uh, spot on in just general society needing to really find that middle ground. But, you know, I do want to take it back a bit. I'm still incredibly shocked right now where we are as a country at how many people simply just don't understand the need and, and the power of social distancing. Can you share some of the misconceptions that you're seeing in society regarding COVID-19 and the gravity of this disease and how important social distancing is? Like tactically, why is social distancing so important for the people that aren't getting it? Yes. Mike, you're right. People aren't getting it. I had somebody message me the other day saying, I'm concerned because my office wants to hold a retirement party for one of the employees next week, complete with buffet. I think this is a bad idea. Dr. Daria, do you think this is a bad idea? So Mike, I actually did a little Instagram video for her and apparently she shared it with her boss. And they did, I'd like to say they, they canceled the office retirement party. But this is why, because this is not like the flip. And here's a couple of ways and ways I like to explain it to people, because I understand we try to compare it. We need to, as human beings, we want to have some parallel to some known. So, of course, this is 
more contagious than the flu, we know. We know for flu, we have some degree of herd immunity, we have vaccines, and we even though it changes every year with mutations, you do have some degree of immunity from your vaccines. We have a treatment for the flu that we can give people. And the flu, yes, the tens of thousands of people who die every year from the flu, they die over a six-month period. We're talking about these numbers for COVID over a two, three, four-week concentrated period. That is really one of the main difficulties. COVID itself, yes, it is medically challenging, particularly because we don't have the vaccines or medications, but it's not that it's medically some unknown, hugely complex disease. One of the biggest problems is the logistical challenges of having everyone get sick at the same time, which is where your question of social distancing comes in, because we do not need... Everyone, if everyone is sick at the same time, everybody is coming into the emergency departments. We are flooded both with the people who are critically ill and we were flooded with the, the worried well, as we like to say, people who will be okay. That's why it's so critically important that the more people are socially isolating themselves, the fewer worried well we'll get. And of course, the fewer critically ill because we cannot have that all at the same time. We need to extend that and spread that out over months and months, just like we do with the flu. That's how we're able to manage it. And so, you know, another big topic right now amongst uh, friends on some of these virtual happy hours that we're having or hangouts and on messaging boards or otherwise is, are we going too far extreme one way or the other? You mentioned it earlier about finding middle ground. And what do I mean by that? There was a recent article in the New York Times by a physician saying, is the cure worse than the disease? Where are we, Dr. Daria, in, re- in regards to the reaction that we're having on this social isolation, social distancing versus the economy? What are your thoughts there in regards to those pulling and opposite forces? Mm-hmm. Mike, I think you're right. I think we have to be looking at the medical implications and we have to be balancing that against the financial and economic implications. I think some could say in part, we were very much behind the eight ball because we did not have testing. Had we had adequate testing, then you could possibly have done lockdowns in kind of a stepwise fashion and be more strategic and deliberate about it. That would have been the best case scenario as opposed to kind of this more draconian blanket lockdowns. Now that we are in these sort of in these lockdowns, I know there have been questions about when the dates would be. What you don't want to do is release everybody too soon, or we're going to lose the medical benefit. At the same time, we will have already experienced the financial loss of this. What I'm telling people now is what we do know is we at least have to wait until we have seen the peak and seen the rates of new cases start to steady or decline. We don't know when that will be. Until we know when that will be, that's kind of like asking me and saying, I'm hiking up a mountain. And you ask me, how much longer do I have to hike up the mountain? But I personally don't know how how tall the mountain is. We have to know how tall that mountain is before we can say when we will start to slow down. And I think, you know, in New York City, they're saying that peak will probably be in the next two to three weeks. I think some other states, it could be three, four weeks away, but at least we'll start to see what happens in New York. That's going to be a very important data point. We're also going to see, Mike, what happens in China. They've started to level off. They're going to start, they've already started reducing the lockdown. That's going to be really helpful for us. We need to, as a nation, take advantage of that data and take advantage that we weren't of the fact that we weren't the first nation and learn what happens when China releases some of those requirements and lets people go back to life. Does the virus spring back 
or does it become a slowly disseminated simmer? That's going to be hugely important. We need to use that data smartly. Thank you for that, Dr. Daria. And let's also now talk a little bit about some of those myths and misconceptions. You know, we see a lot in social media like, oh, I'm young. This doesn't impact me. What are you seeing on the front lines? What are your colleagues seeing in regards to who is getting sick? Mike, I'm glad you're talking about this because we are, we've heard from China that the mortality rates are greatest in the elderly. That holds true. However, this disease in terms of who gets sick and who gets critically ill even if they don't necessarily die from it, but who gets critically ill, does not discriminate by age. We are seeing people in their 30s, in their 40s, and they come in and like, I'm an emergency room doctor, and the most frightened patients I see are those who are short of breath. It is a terrifying feeling. When your oxygen levels are low, you cannot breathe, and your heart rate is up, they are scared. And we're seeing that in people of all ages. Across the country, ICUs are seeing that there are ICU patients from COVID who are under 40, depends on the ICU, but it's anywhere from 12 to 20%, in some places as high as 40% are people under the age of 40. So what I'm telling people again, yes, the death rates are highest in the elderly, but crit- critically ill is span across all ages. And again, it doesn't mean that younger people don't die of it. There's a 0.4% mortality. No, that's much smaller than what we see in people 80 and above. But that means that if a thousand people under 40 get sick, four will die. And that's let's not a zero number. And let's stay on this because it's it's so important. We have to continue to get the word out. This can you know make anyone ill. When you're talking about these younger people that are contracting the virus, do they have comorbidities? Were they perfectly fine before contracting the virus? Where are we at with that as well? There's not been any real studies on this exactly. I know a lot of anecdotal data from talking to a lot of my colleagues nationwide. Yes, there seem to be some conditions that raise your risk. Again, asthma, even if it's sometimes we've seen people who just have mild asthma, maybe slight obesity, even mild obesity may be a slightly increased risk as well. There's a question of smoking, vaping, maybe that contributes. We know that damages your lungs' ability to heal. But of course, then again, there are still those people who are otherwise totally healthy who are still getting sickened from it. And we, I do have to mention that. It's not because it's not the majority, but it still exists. And so the public still needs to be aware of that. Absolutely. Now, let's also talk about, Dr. Daria, some, some tactics that we can take, not only within our own homes where we're practicing social distancing, but of course, we sometimes need to go out and about, whether it be at the, to the you know, grocery store or otherwise. What are some tactics that uh, we can put in place and even talk about even the best kinds of soaps to use? Are we wiping down things? Uh, talk about some of those tactics on the day-to-day. Perfect. Happy to. Um, so, yes. And I will say the reason to do social distancing, so many people say they feel very helpless because they're having to just sit at home. And I have to tell them that one of the number one things that you as an individual and as a population can do for me as an emergency room doctor is not to be my next patient. So please, anybody listening who feels that they're just sitting at home, sitting on their hands, no, that is a very active way of contributing to our ability to manage this disease. Secondly, let's talk about Um, washing your hands. So I just did an interview on CNN the other day and they asked me this exact same question. They said, should you use bar soap or liquid soap? And actually spoke to a person who is an expert in soap, Mike. So there you go, an expert in soap. They shared with me some information. One, when you're looking at a soap, it's probably best during this time to go over something that says antibacterial. 
that's going to have more antibacterial, antiviral properties. Of course, this is a virus, but it will have more properties versus your good old, just plain old moisturizing soap. Maybe table that for now, or at least don't use it when you come in from the store or going someplace. So one is antibacterial, but also just as important as what you use is the duration. Now, we've heard that the CDC say 20 seconds and the WHO say longer, but this is why you need to have a longer period to actually disrupt that lipid barrier that's going to help wash off that virus. You also need to work it into a really good lather. So you make sure you get that good bubbly soap and then get those kind of hidden places, our cuticles, under our nails, you know, the skin folds. All of those places are places that we typically miss when it comes to um, when it comes to washing our hands. So got to wash your hands the right way. It's, we have to repeat this. People are like, okay, I get it. Wash my hands. She's telling me to wash my hands again. I, I can hear the voice in their heads, but actually washing your hands well, this appropriate way, decrease the risk of the cut spread of MERS by 30 to 40%. So this is no joke. Wash your hands, people. Um, the reality is, and if you allow me, Mike, let me just pull up my soap box for just a hot second. I went to the grocery store yesterday. And I saw a bunch of people wearing gloves, but then they, they, they touch the glove to their face or to remove their gloves. They touch the outside of the gloves. That doesn't do you any good. You're much better off not using the gloves, which are going to give you this false sense of complacency and really only help you spread the germs. If you don't remove them correctly. I went to the grocery store yesterday. I didn't wear a mask. I didn't wear gloves, but when I came home, I washed my hands. I washed my hands up to the elbow, like a, a good old surgeon scrubbing in. I changed my clothes. And that's the smart way to make sure that you're not bringing the germs home. And how about all the kids that staying at home that are out of school? What can they be doing inside the house? We're going to talk a little in just a moment about mental health, but what can our children be doing on the physical side as well to protect our families? Great question. Physical to keep all of us sane. So I have been getting a lot of questions on Instagram and different places about, can we go outside? And I am saying, yes, yes, please go outside. Go outside for your children's health. Go out and send your kids outside for your own sanity. I don't know about you, Mike, but my children, you can tell when they just need to get outside and run around. Last night, I told them to go run three laps around the house. I was like, just go outside. Just go. Run. Do. That's true for all of us. We need you cannot stay physically cooped up in the house. If you live in a place that's, you know, more crowded, there are more people than I would say when you go outside, do your best to still, you, you want to avoid large groups together, but go outside, take the family out for a walk, go to a park, walk down the street. All of that is very good. You know, one, it gets you out of the house. It's good for sanity. Two, you're getting in some vitamin D. Three, we know that when you have, with cold and flu season, if you're just walking for five minutes a day, that actually decreases your rate of catching the cold and flu. So we know that it boosts your immunity. So get them out of the house. I think it's also, and we may talk about this later, the importance of routine. I think part of the reason this is so hard is that our normal routines, our, our norms have been so hugely disrupted. So have a set time, you know, two, three times a day, depending on your children's age, that everybody goes out, get some physical activity, you as a parent included, and just incorporate that into your routine. Thank you for that, Dr. Daria. I do also want to ask some questions straight from our community over at passionatepioneers.com. Uh, some of our community members were wanting to ask you, what about the shipments that we're receiving from the FedExes? How should we be thinking about that at this time? The latest studies, it's not entirely known how long the virus sticks on different things. But the one that I'm really following is it says it sits 
for um, copper on four hours. So watch out for your pennies in case you're using pennies anyways. But on cardboard around 24 hours and on plastic and steel around two to three days. So, and this also can tie into your grocery store things. If you really want to be on the safe side, if it's not a big deal, you can take those shipments from Amazon, all the different ones, assuming that they're not perishable. Set them aside for 24 hours if you're worried. You can do one of two things. You can open them up, handle the things inside, and then wash your hands very well afterwards using the methods we just talked about. Or you can have a place where you can quarantine them and for 24 hours, then go and open them up because the virus would have died off of the, the substance aids. Anyways, of course, even if you do that, still wash your hands afterwards. Those are your two options. Either one I think are perfectly fine. And that way you, it, you don't need to be, you know, panic, panicking about this and, you know, you don't need a hazmat suit to open your Amazon boxes is what I'm telling you, Mike. Um, when it comes to grocery, again, yesterday, and especially if somebody is high risk, I would say for them, don't go to the grocery store. But otherwise, when you bring your groceries home, people are saying, do I need to wipe them down and things? If you Obviously, if you saw something that somebody actually coughed and sneezed on, yes, go wipe it down. Otherwise, if it's something that goes in the pantry, just leave it in the pantry again for 24 hours. If it's something that has a plastic or metal container, you want to wipe it down with one of those disinfecting wipes, you absolutely can. And is it necessary? Not necessarily, but if it makes you feel better or you're higher risk, go ahead and do it. And then when it comes to produce, go ahead and wash them, maybe take them out of the plastic bags and store them without the plastic bags in your fridge. Excellent. Now, one more question on delivery and, and pickup and all of that. Another question from our community was, we want to support our local restaurants and our local eateries. And there's ways to do that where they're still doing takeout. Should you go to the physical location to pick up the food or should you have a service like a DoorDash or others deliver it to you? Which one is, from your perspective, the best to do? And so we can continue to support our local eateries and restaurants. This is something my husband and I were talking about last night, Mike. So this is a great question uh, because, Mike, we can't cook every single night of the week here either. It's Nor do we want to. It's important supporting the local mama and dad who otherwise and parents would be cooking. So what I've been doing is, one, is there data for this? No. You know, is there data that if somebody, you know, sneezes on your food and then you ingest it, are you going to catch coronavirus? I've not seen any evidence to support that. That said, we all kind of want to, we don't want to take undue risk is where this is coming from. Again, you do not need to be shunning your delivery person, but if you want to find easy ways to mitigate your risk, that's what we're talking about. That's again, not being panicky about it, but just saying, you know what, this may help. Let's try that. So what I am doing is either one, sending myself or, you know, you send, you send somebody to go pick it up is one way to do it. Yes, peer, theoretically, they're getting into the building, but a lot of places are doing now curbside pickup. So you can call ahead saying, I'm coming to, to you. My, that, that's one thing you can do. A second good option are, is that there are several restaurants that they themselves have their employees doing the delivery. So especially if it's a restaurant you know, you've eaten there before, you feel like they're good at cleanliness, then they have their employees. I kind of personally like that better because it's maybe fewer people contacting the food and it's you know fewer people that they know who has been touching it. So theoretically, if that employee gets sick, the restaurant will know. Probably my least favorite is just having one of the, the DoorDash or Uber Eats or one of those delivering the food because that could be any number of people that just increases the number of contact points. Do I have a randomized controlled trial to support that? No. Do I want to panic people who got DoorDash last night? Absolutely not. We're just talking about ways to mitigate any additional risk. Excellent. Thank you for that, Dr. Daria. Now let's turn our attention towards... Oh, and Mike, I want to make one more point. Yes, on please. That, is that I would say once you get the food, 
serve it out into separate plates, throw away the containers, and then wipe down your counter where the containers were. That's, that's one other small mitigation step. Uh, very good one. Thank you for adding that on, on the back end there. So let's now start looking at some of the other questions that I know that you've been receiving because I have been following your work. It sounds like you're starting to uh, receive questions more from the mental health aspect. First, as COVID-19 came on, you were getting a lot of medical type questions in regards to physical health. Now you're starting to see a lot of your followers talk about mental health and asking you questions there. Can you share a little bit about how we can really just simply not lose our mind in self-isolation? How can we continue to retain that sense of normalcy? How do we talk to our kids about all of this? And what are some of the ways that uh, we can work at home while still having kids alongside uh, family members? Can you maybe unpack all of that? Yes, absolutely. And it may, you know, I'm an emergency room doctor and it may seem funny to be talking about the mental health, but I think that's actually really, really important. I just gave my TED Talk this past fall on how to end the crazy busy. Even at those times you feel the most overwhelmed, how not to feel crazy busy. And also as an ER doctor, yes, most much of my job is diagnostics and treatments and medication, but also part of my job are those times when a patient needs somebody to sit with them or hold their hand or one the other day I was running into the waiting room to find a patient's spouse to get his cell phone from her that and to bring it to him so he could have that contact that is as much a part of my job as an ER doctor as giving a uh, you know as taking care of somebody's heart medically I really think that's very important so to move into that seems you know very natural so a couple things to tell patients and to tell patients to tell our listeners as well is that one during this time we have to be really open in terms of our communication. We need to be sharing with our kids. I think it's without venting upon them. I think it's absolutely fair to be open about this being a hard time, this being a time of transition, and inquire from your kids because depending on your child's age, they may be very stressed out. They may not be stressed out for the reasons that you think. So being very open with them and saying, what is bothering you here? Let's rate today. How did we do as a family on a scale of one to 10? Were we a six? So what do we need to do to be a seven? And then, Mike, I think we actually have to absolutely have to talk about those moments that we, as parents and non-parents, we all are going to have moments when we lose it. Every single person is going to. Maybe the Dalai Lama isn't losing it right now, but everybody else I know, I have had two a person, people call me, text me, say, you know, I something little happened and I yelled at my family and help me. I'm planning on, I'm just leave my entire family right now. We all have those. Last week I had made all these grocery runs because I kept going to different stores trying to find these things I needed. I came home, I opened my door and the detergent fell out and broke and leaked all over the garage floor. Mike, I started crying my eyes out, which you would think, you know, we I handle a lot bigger emergencies than the you know detergent leaking, but I think it goes to show that all of us are operating, if 10 is where we lose it, all of us are operating at kind of six or seven right now. And talking to some psychologist friends of mine, you know, a lot of what they talk about is rupture and repair. And I think you have to say we all are going to have moments where we kind of rupture and we have that breakdown. But psychological learning will teach us that if you just rupture and leave it at that, yes, relationships will be harmed. But you, if you actually go full circle and repair, a relationship can actually be even better than it had been. So what does that mean? That means you have that breakdown moment. But then you actually go back to the family. Maybe you apologize. Maybe you share what led you to that point. And then you share 
what you're going to try to do to mitigate that in the future. So it's okay. It is okay if you have those breakdowns. Everybody is having them. What matters is not whether you had the breakdown. What matters is what you do next. Thank you for that, Dr. Daria. Very poignant and well said. So as we wrap up here, Dr. Daria, I definitely want our community to be able to get a hold of you online or otherwise. What are some contact points online for our community to get engage with you? Absolutely. I am at Dr. Daria, so D-R-D-A-R-R-I-A, um, pretty much everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. That's also my website. As you mentioned, like if you know this information is changing so quickly, I try to answer questions and little mini stories there and videos there as much as I can to keep the audience helping them get the science, but also hopefully with just a little extra dose of sanity as well. And of course, we also have a lot of time on our hands right now to catch up on some reading. Maybe you can let our community know about your new best-selling book. <laughs> yes, there you go. It's called Mom Hacks. It came out last year. It did become a national bestseller. And to be fair, I've had lots of dads and I've had lots of non-parents who love it as well. And it's really saying, I know you have very little time on your hands, whether you have children or not. Those are those who do have children and are who parents. I know you have little time on your hands. These are the highest yield tricks and tactics that I have learned. Some of them I've learned from clinical trials, some of them from some of the best experts in the field, and some of them by trial by fire as well. And really put all of them in one place. You can read in very easy, bulleted format, whether it's nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress management, which right now is more relevant than ever. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. And we'll leave all of those contact points in our episode notes, as well as on passionatepioneers.com. Well, Dr. Daria, thank you for your time today to update our community with the fast-moving coronavirus pandemic. I'm incredibly appreciative of your leadership and dedication to our country and sharing your knowledge and perspective for all of us to live healthier lives during this outbreak. Keep up the great work and please keep us posted how our community can be supporting you. Thank you for all that you're doing, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode. 